Charles and Tony Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be covering the Babylon 5 Season 3 episode, Voices of Authority. So a lot of things go forward in this episode. This is a really good episode. It's kind of just furthering every plot point because we are now in the midst of the complication season. Um, I've mentioned before um, that uh, you... you, you uh, that that the Babylon Five is structured along a five-act structure. You have introduction, rising action, complication, uh, climax, and denouement. Those are the five seasons, and so we are. Uh, season two was you know there's a war going on, shit's going down. This season, shit's getting real. You know this is the complication season. So understandably, a lot of things are moving forward rather quickly. Um. So, I will talk about the uh, first one stuff first, because I have the least to talk about that, but it's still really, really good. Uh, so, Ivanova uh, and Marcus uh, uh, go to negotiate with some first ones. Um, originally, it was supposed to be Sheridan, but due to the Ministry of Peace side of the story, which I'll get to in a bit, he cannot attend. Uh, Ivanova goes to, uh, you know, uh, goes, goes down to Epsilon 3, hooks up to the Great Machine, and we finally get to see how the Great Machine works. That is kind of connected to, the like, everything that is the world, the, make, the, the makeup of the universe that uh, you can see through time and space. Uh, you know, uh, you cannot interact with previous times or future times, but you can see them. Um, I mean, uh, we see the destruction of, of Earth Force One again, and we get the we get the broadcast, which finally cements to the the Army of Light, the you know the conspiracy of light that finally they have actual proof that President Clark, or at the time Vice President Clark, did order the assassination of President Santiago, that he was responsible for the death. Of President Santiago, that he was responsible for the destruction of Earth Force One, and that we hear Mr. Morden's voice implying that President Clark was working with the Shadows, which is something that we found out near the beginning of the season when Mr. Morden had the meeting with the higher ups, including the Psych Corps. But now the Army of Light has that information instead of just the viewer having that information. And they go and they find various uh, hiding spots for different first ones who did not pass beyond the veil that are still here. Because we know the first ones exist in some manner. Uh, the Vorlons and the Shadows are some of the first ones. And they stay behind the Shepherd, the, the younger races. And then we have these weird... Uh, occurrences that that demonstrate there are you know greater beings in the universe. Uh, quote Jakar from the episode uh, that introduced the Walkers to Signum Nine Five Seven. Uh, you know there 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 are beings you know uh, far beyond our understanding. And if they look at us, they look at us as no more than ants. Uh, you know, uh, giants in a playground. And so Ivanova and Marcus go to negotiate with. The first one, specifically, they go to Sigma 957. Remember that all the way back in Season 1? Uh, nice callback. Uh, you know, this is JMS playing the long game, as he always does. And this is uh, them negotiating with them. And and I like the personal aspect we get between Marcus and Ivanova. I'll touch that upon that in a minute after we talk about the actual negotiate with the first one. So, uh, the Walkers of Sigma 957... <laughs> Absolutely refuse 
just refuse to speak in English. They only speak in their language. They understand English, but they refuse to even speak in it. Um, I've talked about a lot of times about the, the Vorlons in particular, about their sense of superiority, their sense that they need to feel superior, that they are the first ones. And when I mean the first ones, they are the first ones. They want you to see them as gods. That's how they want you to be perceived. Uh, they, they, that's how they want you to perceive them. That's just how they work. And that applies here to the Walkers of Sigma, Sigma 957. You know, Zog, Zog yes, Zog no, what does it mean? And thankfully, Ivanova is very astute and, and, and catches things. Uh, and notices that when she brings up the Vorlons, the Sigma, uh, the Walker Sigma, Sigma 957 get rather irritated. So she plays on that. If they want to feel superior, if they want to prove that they are, are gods, then they need to prove it. Because the Vorlons have done far more than they have done. So she plays to their ego, to the ego stroking that the first ones want. Uh, that's uh, Ivanova knows how to run a room. She knows how to... Like get people to pay attention, and and she plays to people's ego, and is very rough about it. She's like, "Hey, listen, you assholes!" Basically, and of course, who can forget Marcus's wonderful line of, "Oh, they they they, they under clearly understand our language. They just refuse to speak it. You know, they clearly they must be French." Um, it's a hilarious line, but it just demonstrates how superior and ego-stroking the first ones are. They they want to feel superior. It's not enough to be superior. They have to feel superior. And when she, when, when she finally gets them to acknowledge her and finally gets them to play on her level by ego-stroking them, basically, and, saying, and provoking them and saying, prove your worthiness, prove you are our gods, basically, prove you're better than the Vorlons, that's when they deign and stoop to her level and speak English. Because finally, finally, they have been proven they are not superior. They want to be, but clearly the Vorlons are more superior. So now they have to re-earn their superiority. It, it, it's place it, it, it's underhanded tactics it's what Ivanova was doing she was uh she, she was basically providing them a want to do something in exchange we will see you as superior if you prove it basically and it was all a matter of prov provoking you know if you get your um if you're in a negotiation and if you can appeal to the emotions of the person you're negotiating against you've won because once you appeal to their emotions, they stop thinking logically. Um, now, the the personal side of that, uh, that beyond just the, 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 the first one mentality of superiority, we get some nice exchanges between Marcus and Ivanova. I think they're adorable. They work wonderful together. Marcus is very... He's not... Um, he's not exactly wholly professional. He is... A jokester. He is, he's lost a lot, uh, and he could very well, you know, go into that bent of, of uh, broody loner. But he hasn't. He's he's basically turned to humor as a defense mechanism. And in that, 
we get to see him use his defense mechanism to disarm Ivanova's defense mechanism. Ivanova's defense mechanism is professionality. She wants to be in control of the situation. She has to be in control of the situation. And she's a workaholic because the more she works, the less she has to think about everything that has gone wrong, everything she has lost. I've talked about this before. And, you know, just everything that, 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 that matters to her is slowly being taken away. And so if she can focus on her work, she doesn't have to think about it. And Marcus acknowledges that and just quickly cuts through her like butter and just goes, no, 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 no. I want to hear from Ivanova. I don't want to hear from Commander Ivanova. I want to hear from Ivanova herself, Susan Ivanova. I want to know your desires, your wants, your likes, your dislikes, all that. You know, there is, there's a difference between who you are on a professional level and who you are as a person. Um, there, There's a reason why, all the way back in Midnight and the Fiery Line, Ivanova asked Talia to visit her when she was off-duty. And we saw the differences in the way Ivanova acts when she's off-duty versus when she's on-duty. And that, that's, that... Uh, difference has kind of gone away over the years because Ivanova has continued to lose and she has stopped being in control of her life and everything that goes on in it and she's the kind of person that has to have hands-on personal experience she has to be in control because if she's not then she could just very well lose everything and I just love the way Marcus disarms her and just appeals to her as a person it's a wonderful moment a wonderful character moment and the two actors have a lot of chemistry on screen I adore them like they are just so good Marcus and Ivanova are some of my favorites and just I, I look forward to seeing how this develops because you know I know where this is going and uh, from my statement you may you may imply certain things but uh you know if you've watched the show you know where this is going if you have not then you you may go oh i see it you're you're, you're hinting at it no 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 no. babylon 5 is that kind of show babylon 5 is more than willing to play with your expectations and so i look forward to just talking about th this developing uh personal relationship between them as time goes on because i like it um now i'm going to talk about the chakar bit and then i will get to the mystery piece so one thing i like is that no one is truly an idiot both zach in the ministry piece storyline and jakar both know something's going on you know zach is like what's the code 7r and Jakar is going around asking you know dylan i've noticed there's been a lot of meetings there's clearly something going on and, you know, Zach and Chakar are not stupid. They clearly can see that all the major players on the station are gathering together and doing something. Whether it's illegal, legal, some sort of secret thing is going on and they're not being told about it. And so Jakar goes from person to person to person and trying to get more information. And I love the way he cuts through with Garibaldi when it's like, you know, Garibaldi's just like, oh, no, it's, just, it's nothing. It's like, no, no, no. I, you know, I thought I've earned your trust, Mr. Garibaldi. I thought, thought we were friends. Don't, don't treat me like an idiot. I know there's something, so tell me. And 
you know, it, it hurts Jakar to not be in the on the know, especially considering everything that's happened. He has lost pretty much everything. He's got nothing left. You know, he he's on this station out of his own safety and the own willingness to protect his people. And Sheridan has offered as much protection as he's legally allowed to give. And so if there's something that can help his people, he's going to take his shot at it. And so at the end of the episode, a rather humorous scene, but also a very significant scene for Jakar, he goes to goes to Garibaldi, and he wants to prove, once and for all, I am worthy of being in the know. And he hands him the Book of Jaquan. And think about that for a second. This is the book that means the most to Jakar. This is his holy book. This is his Bible. And the way the, the Narn operate, it's not like they reprint this. They re manually rewrite it. Every stain, every brushstroke, every like in e spelling error grammatical error is reproduced to the exact when they remake the book of Jaquan. This is his copy. It's vitally important to him. He's a he's a he, he is a devout follower of the faith of Jaquan. And he ha willingly hands this book over to prove he is worthy of being in the know of the Army of Light. It's clear he knows something's going on, and it's clear, especially considering Jakar was one of the first people to find out about the Shadow situation, and the fact that he has been sidelined in all this, it's important to him, so he's going to prove his worth. And he goes to the one person he knows he can trust to understand him and to prove his worth to, because Garibaldi has always treated him as an equal, no matter what. And he knows Garibaldi's a fair man, and a kind man. So he goes to Garibaldi, hands him the book of Jaquan. It's not only humorous, because Garibaldi is half asleep at the time. He's like, the whole station hates me. They all hate me. Um, it's just funny. It's some good comedic relief, but it's also a significant scene for Jakar. And I just like that, for once in a fiction, Babylon 5, you know, Babylon 5 is so great at so many things. And there's so many fiction that if there's like some sort of secret conspiracy Almost no one finds out until the plot is significant enough for them to find out. And they're always so surprised. I like how both Zack and Jakar kind of figure it out. And go, there's something going on. You're not being truthful. Now, let's get to the Ministry of Peace side of this. Because this is beyond the most interesting stuff of the episode. Very, very good. Um, and very, very relevant, sadly, to our real world. So, Miss Masante, who shows up uh, as a liaison, a citizen li liaison between the citizen government, the, the Ministry of Peace, and the military government, and she basically tries to manipulate Sheridan in every way possible. And she's not really subtle about it either. She doesn't have to be. Uh, she has pretty much immunity to this entire situation. She can't be touched. So... She butters up Sheridan in their first scene together. She's like, you know, you're a hero. You, you, you know, I, I, you know, you were the hero. You're the the great destroyer, the 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 Black Star. All this, blah blah blah. You're a wonderful captain. But isn't it odd beyond the Earth Force flag? I really don't see much beyond that to say that we're entering the center of Earth, the Earth government here. You know, she brings in that jingoism, that 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 patriotism that has been ever present in the Ministry of Peace operations. And it's disconcerting to, uh, to to Sheridan because to him, 
and to any reasonable person, Babylon 5 is a neutral station. It's a place where you are there to keep the peace. Being patriotic is kind of not apropos to the situation. It's kind of insincere. It's kind of wrong. And he and specifically, Sheridan is not comfortable with the fact that he is now having to take orders from the civilian government. And she puts it very bluntly when she says, you know, the military arm is there to uh, follow orders. It is, you know, the president uh, proposes, the military deposes. That's not at all how things work. The military has the right to look at orders and examine them. It is the job of a soldier not just to follow orders, not to go kill the enemy. It's the job of a soldier to analyze the orders they are given, make sure they are correct, legal, and moral before fulfilling those orders. And if those orders are incorrect, to bring it up to the superiors, to challenge it through the authority of the law, first and foremost. A soldier is not some blank slate you throw at the enemy. And Sheridan is the epitome of a good soldier. He understands the difference between being some sort of number on a list to be thrown and disposed and just used as a way to eliminate threats and being a good soldier, someone who follows orders, yes, but follows orders in the correct method, analyzing, examining, determining, and then following, or in some cases, challenging. That's what a lot of people get wrong about the military, is that it's not blindly following orders. There is no such thing as blindly following orders. You have the right, and you should exercise that right, to look at the orders first and make sure that they are legal in the first place. And he is uncomfortable with the fact that civilians, people who have no experience in the military field, are now giving him orders. They are playing politics. And if you notice, everything Miss Masante does in regards to Sheridan is appealing to him on a career and a political level. It is all about this can further your career. It's not about keeping the peace. It's not about maintaining the peace. It's not about who he is as a person, as a commander. It's all about a career mindset. This is a job, and you're going to do it because we say you are supposed to do it, and this will further our political goals. And it's all about ego-stroking, too. Like, you know, I mentioned before about how she butters him up before saying the patriotic stuff that she feels. And in that dinner scene, that dinner scene, oh my god, it is horrifying. <laughs> and you're on Sheraton's side the entire time, because Miss Masante does what every politician in the entire world has done at some point. They rewrite the dictionary. This is classic dirty pull. This is classic politics. This is why I don't trust a single politician in the world. And they're all corrupt. And this is the reason. In order to further their own needs, their own wants, their own desires, for their own personal gain, they are more than willing to rewrite language. It's all about semantics and the language of power, the language of tyranny, the language of evil. 
to say, we don't have homeless because we offer jobs to anybody who wants them. Sure, there are some displaced people, but they're just either lazy or criminal or mentally unstable. We don't have a homeless problem. You notice how she redirects the problem. It's not about like, acknowledging the problem exists. It's about rewording it so that it doesn't exist. And the scary bit of it all, especially when she's like, and the mentally unstable and the, the criminal, you know, we, we, we have instituted correctional facilities to ensure that they are filtered out at a young age. That is straight up brainwashing. That is straight up horrible, horrible and terrifying news. And if I was Sheridan, I don't think I would be able to stay at that table for long enough with this woman. But he manages to. And you notice the entire time she's constantly encouraging him for being a good soldier. And, you know, a, fi you know, a fine soldier, a, a service to his world, to his president. And all the time he completely disagrees with her. Because we know how Sheridan is. We know he's egalitarian. We know how he believes. And he believes there's a firm difference between political action and correct action. And she even talks about the, you know, the, the idea that uh, some people would criticize the government, criticize the president. They just, they just take delight in seeing problems with our leaders when there is none, when they're trying to solve the problems in their own way. It's just unpatriotic and uncorrect, you know, just not the right way to do things. And we know from previous episodes that he stood up for someone who was protesting against Clark all because of here's the thing all because he believes there is a difference between the position and the person currently holding the position and that's a fine line and it's a line I agree with and and more on her thing with Sheridan before I go to her talk with Zach of notice how when she cannot appeal to him on a patriotic level, on a jingoistic level, when she cannot appeal to him on an ego-stroking level, she goes for another dirty tactic, another dirty pull move. This is this is classic manipulation 101. Remember how I mentioned the way to win a debate, win a negotiation, is to appeal to someone's emotions? The classic way to do this is to appeal to their baser desires, our natural, innate, hu animal, human instincts within us. What I'm talking about is sex. There's no way around it. She goes and outwardly flirts with him, undresses herself in front of him, and more than willingly throws herself at him, hoping to crawl into his bed with him and sleep with him, all to keep him on her side. This is classic manipulation. If you cannot get someone to move on your side, you appeal to their emotions, their baser instincts. Let their other brain, as some would put it, take over. It's classic dirty pool. It's classic tactics. It, it's classic manipulation. And she's not even subtle about it. And that's the scary thing. She doesn't need to be anymore. The Ministry of Peace has pretty much taken over 
And this is where it's at now. She can be as dirty and crass and open as she wants to be the way she's manipulating people. And then this is where we get the Zack and the Ministry Peace section with the Night Watch. She gives a speech at a Night Watch rally, which Zack is a part of, and she talks about that that no one is allowed to say bad things about the president. No one's allowed to say bad things about, you know, uh, anything in regards to... Uh, uh, in regards to the administration, about people in power, and that they are in that they are supposed to take their investigations to the next level. Remember how last season Zach was talking about how he gets paid to do what he already does. You know, just again, it's just simple investigations, making sure people are being calm, quiet, and he had nothing to report, if you remember, because he saw nothing. It's just people, you know, actively practicing the free right to speech and then now and he's been been sort of peer pressured into um going along with the way the night watch does things and now they take it a step forward you're now supposed to uh look at family and friends and past associations and make sure that everybody is on the same ideological level that newspapers that any news outlets any kind of media is producing pro president clark pro current administration pro nightwatch pro ministry of peace propaganda that they are supposed to keep these media outlets ideologically pure <sighs> notice that for a second this has sounded all familiar to some something in real world history because it sounds like a lot of things in real world history from the Nazis, which is the obvious parallel, to uh, you know, the Gestapo, the secret police, and the McCarthyism and the Red Scare in the 50s and 60s, to even modern day, fake news, Donald J. Trump, and everything he's done. You know, it's all about making sure that your ideology is the only one heard, because the more your ideology is heard rather than the others, the more people will believe it. Because if it's their only news source, how can they deny it? Hmm? It's scary to think about. And notice how Zach feels uncomfortable, really uncomfortable with this. And he, he talks about that, you know, the hypocrisy that we are supposed to, uh, you know, do these things, you know, prosecute on due process within the, 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 the level of the law. And notice how Ms. Misante goes, well, yes, but we're ensuring that the rules will be rewritten so you can avoid due process. So you'll still be following the law. The law now bends to their will. The law should bend to no one's will but justice. We talked about this last episode. And this is taking it to the next level. And the people in power have the ability to rewrite it so that they are above the law and no one should be above the law. And now I want to talk about a couple things with Zach before I sign off. Notice how it, throughout this episode he's talking about how his uniform doesn't fit. It just feels tight. It just, it, it just doesn't feel right. 
You know, maybe he needs to have it readjusted. And this is a metaphor. And it's a metaphor that's taken to the next level near the end of the episode, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, that Zach is not comfortable with the current situation. He doesn't feel right. The Night Watch was something he started doing, as I mentioned, because, well, he's getting paid to do exactly what he's already doing. So what's the fuss? You know, he's the classic collaborative mentality of not thinking through the, the, the horrible actions he may have to do. And now that he's being forced into those horrible actions, he feels increasingly uncomfortable. This uniform just doesn't fit him. Maybe he needs a different uniform. Maybe he needs a uniform that fits who he is as a person. Not as though who he is now, but who he's becoming. Who he believes he is. And you notice how he's always wearing that armband. You know, the armband is a classic of many different, uh, you know, uh, organizations over human history to say that I'm on your side, don't hurt me. And so effectively what the armband is, um, I mean, obvious parallel, Nazis, swastikas. I can go on in the normal human history, but the fact that the Ministry of Peace are effectively the Nazis is quite plain. Now, this is taking a step further when he flirts with Miss Masante near the end of the episode. He is uncomfortable, yes, and he and he talks about the you know a nice uniform will influence the ladies and blah blah blah, but he is effectively in bed with the enemy, and him flirting with Miss Masande is kind of that in a nutshell, that he hasn't really thought he may, he may be uncomfortable, but he hasn't really thought about the situation he's in, and he's just going further and further, and getting metaphorically in bed with the enemy, sleeping with the enemy. But the uniform just doesn't fit. He doesn't fit anywhere. Maybe he should find a new place. A place that defines who he is. It's not exactly a subtle metaphor, but it's a good one. And I just love how Garibaldi calls him out. And it's like, I'm not, you know, I, it took me a long time to feel comfortable trusting people after what happened to me. And now I'm not sure if I can trust you. And, you know, Zach and Garibaldi have a reasonable argument in which... It's it's kind of a situation where Zack is in the wrong, and he's starting to realize he's in the wrong, but he hasn't quite processed it yet. It's going to take some time. And before I sign off here, I just want to talk about some interesting historical parallels to the ending of this episode. Um, you know, I'm recording this in the year 2020. Um, th this is an interesting thing where... They have hardcore, legitimate proof that President Clark is a criminal, did these horrible things, potentially assassinated President Santiago just to take the presidency, did all these horrible things, and what happens? Absolutely fucking nothing. Just an investigation that will be bought off, and nothing will happen, and President Clark will just sit there forever. The truth has come out, but the truth means shit. Sometimes truth and justice are not the same thing. The truth is important, but justice sometimes is diluted. Once again, I talked about this last episode, passing through Gethsemane, and how it's a revenge system, and how those in power can remain in power through that. 
But my point is, this sounds awfully familiar to the allegations that went against President Donald J. Trump and how we had hardcore proof that he was a criminal, that he bought off the election, and what happened? Nothing. Once again, the wheel turns, people in power stay in power, the corrupt continue to be corrupt, and nothing in the world changes. If only we had someone like Sheridan that was willing to stand up and say, enough is enough. But anyway, thank you for listening. This is one, what a wonderful episode this was. Um, this is this is Babylon 5 on its hot streak, and it's just going to continue to get better and better and better. Till then, I'll see you next time. Bye.